Man, it's always a highlight of my week to be here with you guys as we look at God's Word together in community. <clears throat> um, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here. For those who have never been before, we, uh, oh, we enjoy our time on Sunday morning, obviously, and we try to do everything we do when we teach the Scriptures. We just go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and when you do that, unfortunately, you stumble across some passages that would be much easier to just avoid. Today is one of those passages I wish we could just avoid, but we cannot because we believe that all of Scripture is important. So we're continuing with our series on 2 Peter. I've entitled this message, you can bring, the clicker's not working. Can you make sure the, all right, humble vigilance. So I have a couple of things to talk about before we read this this passage is just full of encouragement and flowery speech and wonderful stuff, right? Wait till, wait till we read it. You're not going to believe this. You're just lucky you don't have to preach it. <clears throat> um, have you ever had someone you care about be wounded or misled or maybe even taken advantage of by someone or some group of people? How did it make you feel when they were wounded? What did you want to do to the people that wounded them? What did you want to say to those who did it? Did you, if you're like me, you know, this obsessive compulsive personality, did you play scenarios out in your head of what it would look like if you had a chance just to sit them down and just unleash your wrath and fury, what you would say, how it would go if you had a chance just to let them have it, pointing the wagging of the finger, all of it, right? <clears throat> when people we love are victimized, it is definitely fertile ground for our anger and sometimes, many times, that anger is justified. But here's another question. Have you ever wounded, misled, or taken advantage of someone else's loved one? Were you confronted? Were you embarrassed? Did you lash back? Were you humbled? Did you ask for forgiveness? <clears throat> and if you think about it, all of us, intentionally or not, we have wounded someone else's loved one. Now look, certainly evil should be called out. It should be dealt with. But how can we do that without seeming like absolute total hypocrites? It's a hard balance, isn't it? Managing our righteous anger toward those who've hurt our loved ones. Then on the other hand, maintaining humility over the fact that outside of God's grace, we are capable of almost anything. Second Peter chapter 2, 10 through 16. This is a continuing Peter's discussion about false teachers and who they are and how they should be dealt with. Remember, this is being read in community together as a church. People aren't reading this alone in isolation on their Bible apps on their phone. They're all together. The elders of the church are reading Peter's letter, so everyone is together. He says, especially those who indulge in the lust of the flesh or the lust of defiling passion... They despise authority. They're bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel, to revel in the daytime. 
They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Isn't that just a great passage? Let's just close in prayer. I'll let you guys deal with it yourself. Before we start, I want you to notice there is another beautiful Old Testament hyperlink, isn't there? To Balaam and the donkey in Numbers 22 and Joshua 13. I'm not going to read it today or discuss Balaam much this week. I'll I'll allude to it next week, but you should probably read it on your own as you're learning, as you go through the New Testament. You should always stop when there's an Old Testament link and read that Old Testament story. So let's look at the history of what's going on here. What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? I've entitled the historical section, Public Retribution. So I understand that Peter has some desperation here in his voice, as you can tell, right? He has both a sense of anger and desperation because he loves these churches that are reading his letters. You know, Paul struggled with the same feelings that Peter expresses here. Look what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. Same way Peter knows he's about to die. Paul knew he was about to die. And here's what he said. I know after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering, for three years I did not cease, day or night, admonishing everyone with tears. You see the intensity that these apostles have when it comes to dealing with false teachers. Where did Peter's anger come from? What is Peter's motivation? Why did he get so graphic in a letter he knew was going to be read in public? Simple, Peter loves the church. He's angry. People have been taking advantage of a community of people who have already suffered. You know, remember, some in the church were wealthy, but for the most part, the church in the first century was made up of marginalized people, slaves, The poor, uneducated, widows, orphans. For 35 years, Peter has given it all he's got to preach the gospel and serve these precious brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century. He is is as vested emotionally as anyone can be. He's a shepherd. He's looking out for God's flock because he knows that he's about to die. And he wants to give them, remember the theme of this, series is remembering important things, he wants to give them a passionate reminder about false teachers, what they look like, and how they're to be treated. And then I want you to see the second thing I want to point out. He says that they're feasting with you. They're feasting with the church. See, these false teachers would be sure to show up to every gathering that the Christians would often celebrate. And usually when they got together, the scripture says, if you remember, they would go from house to house, breaking bread daily, having community, feasting together. And so what these false teachers would do is by participating in these feasts, first of all, they get a free meal, but they're really actually saying, look, we're one of you. We are followers of the same Jesus and the same apostolic teaching. But the fact is, Peter says they're frauds. 
I mean, now, of course, these believers, they're precious believers that, are, that have been taught that it's important to treat the world with compassion and dignity and, 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 and to live with proclamation and integrity and industry. Why wouldn't they accept anyone who wants to identify with Jesus? Well, of course they would. But these false teachers weren't there to celebrate with God's people. They were there to manipulate. They were there to deceive. And the scripture said they, become, they became dressed, they came dressed in nice clothes with the, as Peter calls it last week, the appearance of godliness. But in reality, they lived lives of sexual, social, and financial immorality. They pretend to be one of them, so they can get their foot in the door. And why? Listen carefully. Here's why Peter says this. Because they're there for one reason. They want to find victims. They look for people to manipulate, people to mislead, and even to take advantage of sexually. It's the classic wolves in sheep's clothing scenario. They rejected most of the critical teachings of Jesus like about his return and about how he had to die for sin. Oh, that's not true. That's not what Jesus really said. The apostles misunderstood. Sure, they're with him every day for three years. They're just not smart like we are. But they stay in the church among these sheep who they see as vulnerable. And what Peter does is he makes it very clear. He's calling them out. He wants to make sure before he dies that he describes these teachers, that he exposes them, and he warns about the dangers they pose. So what would be the best way for Peter to call them out? There's no social media. There's no Facebook or Twitter. It would have to be in a public setting, and he can't be there. He knows that his letter will be read in community, around food. Everyone, including the false teachers who want their foot in the door, will be there. You get the picture now? And while this passage is being read aloud... These false teachers are exposed with their smug smiles. It's quite the scene, if you can imagine with me. As the elders of the church read it, including, by the way, how they would do it, right? They would read it and they say, oh, Balaam, let's go back and read Numbers 22. And they would read the story about Balaam and the donkey and then the reference to it in Joshua 13. They would read that and they'd go back to the letter. And all of a sudden, here's what's happening. Peter gets to that little, uh, the, the elder who's reading it would get to that little, that little section that Peter writes, calling them animals and all this stuff. People start looking around. <clears throat> you ever been in that situation where like somebody in authority is dressing down a whole group and you know they're not talking to everyone, but they're talking to some people. He's not talking about me, is he? Who's he talking about? I mean, it gets real quiet. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been in that situation? Is he talking about me? I don't think it's me. I bet people got offended. Some maybe even tried to speak up and say, oh, whoa, 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 that's not right. No, be quiet. We're reading Peter's letter. Maybe some got so upset they walked out. I've had people walk out of me. Maybe it's not because I said anything good. Maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know. But I'm sure they walked out as they're reading that letter. See, Peter wanted this to happen. He wanted it to be an intense, uncomfortable, awkward situation where false teachers who were looking for victims were called out. He wants them exposed. He wants them embarrassed. He wants them to be shamed into leaving the church. Let's look at the spiritual part. What about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I've called this section what heresy looks like. First section, irrational animals. Look, 
If you don't like this section, I understand. Just email me at meganmooney at hotmail.com and tell me what the problems you have with this, because I know many of you love animals. Just email me at meganmooney at hotmail.com. I'll, I'll be sure to get that. Listen, there's a difference between talking about spiritual things and embracing complete spiritual orthodoxy. And so Peter gives this comparison between angels and animals. And the reason he does that is he's demonstrating the gap between where angels are and where these false teachers are in understanding spiritual things. Look, this is not an insult to pets. It's an illustration about the actual level of spiritual awareness these false teachers had. Angels, even the fallen angels that we've studied in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, understand who God is. They understand his power. They understand sin. They understand spiritual truth. But no animal can grasp these concepts. Animals, as precious as they can be, as useful as they can be, as comforting as they can be, they aren't rational or spiritual beings. They are emotional, which is why we love them, and they are instinctual. They aren't artistic. They don't understand philosophy or science or sin. They don't understand any of that. Angels and animals, it's an effective metaphoric scale to show the vast gap between who these false teachers are and who they think they are. Peter says the false teachers are like irrational animals with no spiritual wisdom or discernment. I mean, they act like experts on spiritual things, but they have no spiritual wisdom, no more than oxen, sheep, cows, or dogs. Yes, even cats. But then he describes them as arrogant. Peter says their ignorance paired with their arrogant, foolish confidence is a pathetic, sad reality. He says they're obstinate, they're stubborn, they're arrogant, yet they have no more spiritual insight about God than an animal would. They say things about Jesus or God that even fallen angels would be scared to say. They're incredibly foolish, their audacity. They are hostile. They are brazen, scoffing at others. They're willfully, openly defiant, fearless in their rebellion against truth and authority. Peter describes them as foolhardy, overconfident, smug, blasphemers of the worst kind. They rejected the most important tenets of the gospel, the return of Jesus and the death on the cross as payment for our sin. I compare them to pastors in churches today who teach Jesus is a way to God and not the way, which, by the way, is a direct contradiction to what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father but through me. And then he says they have eyes full of adultery. What does this mean? See, he doesn't stop there, right? He exposes their lifestyle, he says this is how you can know who they are, what to look for, how to spot them. See, this phrase, eyes full of adultery, it means they're always on the prowl looking for people to seduce, to commit adultery with. That's what the phrase means. There's no respect or concern for destroying marriages in the name of righteousness. That's the way they would do it. They would destroy marriages in the name of righteousness. Sadly, I know pastors who've done this. People just become an object for personal pleasure and satisfaction with no concern for the damage they cause, the lives they destroy. 
Peter says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. What does that mean? They don't even hide their immorality. They flaunt it. Their appetite for immorality is so insatiable and so reckless with no bounds, no shame, they don't even bother to conceal it. They say that my lack of concern for morality shows that I have achieved a greater spiritual plane of enlightenment than you sorry sack of people who think you have to live in a righteous life, laboring to be good. None of that stuff matters. Now, imagine hearing all this in public with some of the people that Peter's calling out, maybe some sitting next to you, how awkward the silence must have been. People looking around the room, they know who it applies to. I doubt, though, that many were standing up in the room. Yeah, that's right, Peter. You get him. Woo, go. No, they're like, oh, my goodness. This is intense. Oh, a little awkward. Let me ask you a question. What in, what in the world as a pastor am I supposed to do with this unbridled, vitriolic, apostolic tirade? I know you want something good to take home with you, right? Was Peter wrong in doing it this way? What would happen if I did this kind of thing in our church every Sunday? Not good. But I think I do have an application that I think will encourage you and inspire you. I've called the personal application this week vigilant and grateful. Here was the sermon preview this week on, on uh, social media. Could you imagine what type of person you'd be if Jesus had never transformed you? See, to me, our responsibility today is the same as it was for those who heard it read aloud for the very first time. Yes, there should be vigilance. But see, for me, if I were hearing something like that in public, I'm not going to be real arrogant. I'm going to be like, holy moly. It's humbling, isn't it? Even if it doesn't apply to you, it's like, whoa. And I want you to know as your pastor, I, I think the greatest threat to the church, I'll tell you, I am not really concerned about the world's outside opinion on truth, morality, and sexuality. That's kind of, you know, it is what it is. That's not us. And I don't even judge them. I don't condemn the outside world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I will look for ways to, in wisdom and discernment, wisely connect with them, maybe work with them with integrity and industry. Why? So I can have the opportunity for proclamation. The love of Jesus. I try my best, and I fail sometimes, but I try to love them where they are. I try to understand their burdens understand their pain, serve them, love them, care for them, while focusing on the three roles of the royal priesthood, right? Proclamation, integrity, and industry. You know, I don't even worry too much about non-Christian religions. I really don't. Matter of fact, I look for ways to collaborate with them to help our community, like, for example, the All Faiths Food Bank. It doesn't say All Baptists or All Presbyterians Food Bank. It's All Faiths. I got no problem working with religions who don't believe in Jesus. I know who they are. 
They know who we are. And the comfort about that is we're all up front about it. And we have the opportunity as Christians to interact with patience and love while proclaiming Jesus. I'll tell you the group we have to be most vigilant about are those who claim to follow our Jesus but reject his core teachings. Those are the greater danger. Those are the ones that need to be called out. Claiming to be a Christian, yet subtly or overtly preaching things clearly and contrary to the word of God. And they're so good at it today. Incredibly slick YouTube videos and podcasts claiming to speak for God while contradicting the scriptures as they go. These inside groups that I will call them confuse Christians with false teaching and wrong priorities. And let me tell you something, they are everywhere. They are a greater threat to the church than these outside groups that I was just describing that I really don't have a problem interacting with. Look, I'm not going to call out names today. I've done it in the past, as you know. It's not really the point of today's sermon. You've heard me say it before, and when it's necessary, I'll say it again. Some of them are local. Some of them are national. Some of them are global. But I will tell you this. We must, as followers of Jesus, along with other churches who are faithful followers of Jesus, be vigilant. That's why I take time to spend time with local pastors that I know believe the gospel. Because we have to know how to spot them, how to call them out without wavering, just as Peter did. However, we must do it with this humble gratitude. We can't be arrogant, mean, vicious. And, you know, it can maybe seem a little bit counterintuitive here to read this passage about how God sees evil and false teachers and see it as a catalyst for humble gratitude, right? Here's the fact. Our vigilance against this type of thing must be saturated with humble gratitude for how the gospel has transformed us. We must not forget who we were without Jesus. Now, some people will say, well, aren't Christians just the same as them? Arrogant, confident that we know the truth. What we believe is the only way. Doesn't that sound just like some other false teachers? We arrogantly assume that we have the real thing. And we brashly proclaim it, dismissing all other opinions? Is that a problem? Well, no. Let me tell you why. If you remember, in chapter 1, Peter says, those who have embraced the gift of faith have a life that what? Produces virtue. That produces knowledge. That produces self-control. Produces stability. Produces reverence. Brotherly affection. And love for your fellow man. You see the difference? You cannot be a follower of Jesus and be one who proclaims the truth and do it in an arrogant way. And I see a lot of people do that. Faith, real faith, makes us into people that are inspired and motivated by gratitude, humility, service, and sacrifice. Faith produces a group of people who think of others, Paul says, as better than themselves. Even people who don't believe the truth that we embrace, considering them better than yourself, putting them before your own self. You know what I realized as I studied 
this sermon or this passage this week and wrote this sermon, I was overwhelmed with something. Just how much God has done for us. I'm going to give you a passage that Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You guys know Ephesians chapter 2 is my favorite chapter in the New Testament. I think I've told you guys that many times. Look what he says in verses 1 through 5. And I want you to see if you can pick up on some similarities between this description and the one Peter just gave. Because Paul's talking about false teachers as well. Look what he says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked according, or once walked following the course of the world, the spirit that still works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because he loved us even while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that description, the first part of it, sound like who Peter was describing a little bit? The fact is this. Yes, we're going to be vigilant, but none of us are any better if not for God giving us eyes to see and ears to, ears to hear the truth and the gift of faith. Look, maybe, maybe without Jesus, you wouldn't be quote-unquote as bad as those false teachers. But you would still be led, led by the same passions, by the same desires, and by the same foolishness. Perhaps maybe you would just be somebody who loves more money than you should. Maybe more than people. Perhaps you'd just be someone who struggles with prioritizing things of the world over kingdom things. Maybe you would just be one who just relentlessly, hopelessly searches for purpose in life through fulfilling your earthly desires. Maybe we would be people who despise the church, scoff at the idea of sin and the cross and the gospel. Because you see, humble gratitude for what God's grace and what the gospel has done in transforming you must be evident even in your vigilance against false teaching. There's no room for arrogance or brashness. That's their way. We must be inspired and humbled by the fact that we are grateful to God for saving us from ourselves. We are humbly inspired to love. We are humbly inspired to service. And we are humbly inspired to theological vigilance. We are inspired by humble gratitude that gives us pure hearts. And humble vigilance for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we know, but Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. Look, that's how the church heard Peter's words. With somberness and soberness. Remember what he said? Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary walks about like a roaring lion. I didn't just pull those words out of nowhere. It's in the text. Maybe they were even a little anxious as the letter was read, right? You would be, we would be. But they respond with humble gratitude. Wow, I'm glad he wasn't talking about me. And the only reason he isn't it's because of God's grace. It's that humble gratitude 
that will keep you vigilant and diligent, that will keep your eyes open for anyone and anything that could possibly try to draw your heart away from your Jesus or hurt your community of brothers and sisters. You know, I'll close with this. You know, before church, precious sister in the church, and this happens to me every week, came up to me with a list of people she's been listening to. Can you tell me what you think about them? (laughs) I'd heard of three of them and not heard of two of them. And I said, you know, I know that these two are probably okay. This one maybe a little bit, but you know, I said, I'm, I'm so thankful. I have the confidence in you because you're humble and vigilant and sober. You know what to look for, don't you? And she said, yeah, I actually can hear some things. And I realized, oh, that's not right. I said, it's me. I'm doing my job. We want to make sure there's nothing that we allow to draw our hearts from our Jesus or those around us. But we must do it in humble gratitude. We don't want to sound like the arrogant, brash, false teachers that Peter was calling out. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have saved us. You transformed us because it is frightening to think what we would be without your grace. And Lord, allow that reality to never leave our our minds so that we can stay humble and gracious. Lord, help us to have wisdom to be able to spot out the wolves among us. At the same time, keep us humble, thinking of others as better than ourselves, willing to serve and work with others that aren't like us, all the while clinging with a tight grip to the precious gospel that has transformed our lives. Lord, we might compromise a lot of traditions, things that maybe make us uncomfortable, but we will never compromise truth because it is your truth that has set us free from who we could have been. Keep us sober Keep us vigilant and keep us humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. We love you guys. Thank you, Scotty. I appreciate that. That was a good clap. Have a great week. <laughs>